to go the whole hog. As merry as a pismai. Fit as a fiddle. Before you could say Jack Robinson. As pert as a pearmonger. So I don't know him from Adam's off ox. Draining cats and dogs, paying through the nose, and all those strange things which no one seems to know anything about. We have met here today to discuss the book recently published by the University of Minnesota Press. Take my word for it. Uh, there is an idiom in the title, and it's all about idioms because the book is about idioms. There is a subtitle here, A Dictionary of English Idioms, and it is a dictionary of English idioms. But before we begin to speak about idioms, I think it would be good if I introduced all three of us to the world at large. I'm Anatoly Lieberman from the University of, of Minnesota, and I'm the author of this book. My friends today, Professor Larry Mitchell and, and Dr. Ari Hoffman, have collaborated with me on the major etymological project of my life, and Larry's name is on the cover of a, of a dictionary, and Ari's on the cover of a bibliography. Uh, both books have been published by the University of Minnesota Press, so it's not that we are simply together to chat about things which interest us in some way. We are professionally interested in etymology and in, in the origin of words, and we are all three specialists in language history. So that, that is the reason why this team exists. That is as much as I can say about, about introductions, unless you want to add something, Ari, you wanted to add something to my introduction? No, no, you said it all very nicely. No, 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 because I thought the expression on your face. No, no, you said we just were not just three people gathered to chat about fun things. And I said, oh, well, well, I thought we yes, were. That's exactly what we're <laughs> going to do. We're going to, to talk about fun things. And uh, the main thing is that uh, all three have read the entire book. Well, I have read it because I had no chance not to read it. Uh, I've written it. And Larry and Ari were kind enough to read it. Though reading a whole dictionary is probably a rather tedious task. So I'm very grateful to them. But we're here to discuss one important thing. To what extent is such a book interesting to the world at large, uh, to specialists and to non-specialists? Who is going to read it? I'm not an objective critic because I know the book by heart. And since I know the book by heart, I have lost the emotional contact with it that, that made me write it. But you, Larry, and you, Ari, you have recently read the book, so you are not yet bored by it or with it. And this is a very good thing. So you can certainly say something about it. So what do you think? There are many questions, really. Is it a readable book? Is it a book or is it only a reference tool, as they say? Uh, is it something that people will read and enjoy? Is it something that goes above and over what has been published along the same lines? What do you think the future of this book is? Well, I, let me say right away, in terms of the, the reading part of it, I wouldn't characterize it by saying I, I read the book. I jumped in at the deep end, I would say. Uh, that is, I looked up something right away. Uh, so I had something in mind and I look it up. Uh, then I, I moved from there, uh, moving back and forth uh, in entries. So it's not a book that I would start by reading at the beginning under the letter A and go through to Z. Uh, although I might see, look to see if there was anything under Z or Z, as we might call it. 
So jumping in the deep end, I think, is what most people will do here. And once they're in, they'll want to swim. Not sink, which is a very good thing. And I uh, opened it up at random and uh, just looked at what I found. I just pointed my finger randomly and said, well, uh, let's take a look at this. Some of the idioms I knew, some of the idioms I didn't know, they were all fun. They were all interesting. Even the ones that I, I had never heard about, I was strangely curious to know the etymology of, if that sentence was grammatical. It was very close anyway. Yeah, I think for many people, the, the issue will be which ones that they know and which ones they don't know. So that they want to start with the ones they know, I imagine. Very good. Thank you. And uh, now that you have heard all of us, perhaps a short comment on three different accents will not be entirely out of place. As you have heard, uh, all of us speak English, but somehow in a different way or in different ways. So let me, uh, uh, let me explain how it, how it happened. Now, Larry was born in Scotland, but was educated not in Scotland, and his is a British accent, which all my life I've been trying to imitate with very little uh, success. That is, every time when I ask someone who was born in England, when I am in England, would you take me for an Englishman? The answer was a resounding no under no circumstances, <laughs> which is extremely disappointing because I learned English from uh, from the BBC 70 or 80 or 90 years ago, the way they spoke English at that time. But there is something wrong uh, with my English. There is no local accent. You will never guess whether I'm from Devonshire or from Cambridgeshire. Uh, and uh, that is uh, probably why I'm never taken for an Englishman. I was uh, born and educated in the former Soviet Union and learned English from my English teachers who had never heard an Englishman in their lives. So I was the third or the fourth generation of Russian English speakers. Now I've spent more than half a century in the United States and uh, almost half a century in the United States and haven't Americanized my accent because uh, that would turn me into a laughing stock. So I decided I will stick to my accent. Now, Ari uh, was born in the Midwest and has his uh, uh, absolutely obvious, cultured, uh, cultivated accent that he uses on stage because he's also uh, a, a well-known and popular actor. I, I should say, when I go back to my hometown, which is Detroit, people think I'm from someplace else. So I'm my accent has no home. It's Midwestern and it's neutral, but it, I, I, I tell the story frequently about how I applied for a job once in Detroit and the person who took my paperwork said, well, wherever you're from, you really kept your accent. And I said, I, I'm one of you. I grew up just down the street. So I don't know what happened to me. I wasn't trying to uh, fool anyone, but uh, something happened. Well, I think you should have used some idiom uh, to prove uh, that you're really uh, from Detroit. Well, now that you know so many idioms, that won't be too difficult. So now that you know who we are, uh, all three of us. It brings me to another point. We may call ourselves an international team to a certain extent. Uh, one born in Britain, one born uh, in the United States, and one born in Russia. And all of us interested in English, professionally so, and also because we love the language. The book is called, of course, A Dictionary of English Idioms. What do you think? Is it truly British? Is it English? What is the appeal of the book as far as its geography is concerned? I also have my own opinion, but I would first of all like to know what the two of you think. Well, uh, uh, my impression of it is that, uh, if anything, it leans towards the British usage in the number of examples 
they're probably more drawn from British uh, speech than from American, but that's a function of the world at large to some extent. Uh, but there are other cases where I couldn't say offhand whether the uh, particular idiom is British or American, in part because I have become so uh, used to speaking to Americans and speaking in America and reading that way. So take take example of touch wood. Some people say touch wood and some people say knock on wood. If you ask me without having the dictionary by my side, which one was British and which one was American, I couldn't tell you offhand because I've assimilated both of them and I could say either of them. So I think there, that makes for me a very interesting aspect of the book itself is the way in which you can find yourself or lose yourself in the locutions and their origin. And I think reading as an American, the ones that I don't recognize, I automatically assume to be both British and classy. So uh, <laughs> I always think, oh, this must be from some very fine works of literature that I haven't read, but I want to know. It doesn't dissuade me from wanting to know more about the uh, about the phrase. Actually, I want to know more about it because I think, well, I should be a bit more educated. Well, I have, have almost the same uh, attitude toward it. Uh, both of you, I think, have mentioned something which partly amused me. You said there are many idioms there which you don't know. I would like to say that 80% of the idioms that I discuss in the book were totally new to me. Is that a drawback or an asset? So many of these idioms are truly local. You know that the discussion goes back to some discussion in Notes and Queries and other popular magazines. Very often I write, no one knew this expression. People would ask, what's the origin of this phrase? And no one knew this expression. Uh, to me, uh, these expressions were a great source of both amusement and uh, enlightenment. Uh, because, of course, it's like reading a Webster's Dictionary. You don't expect to know all the words. Who knows all these words? Also, who needs those words? But as a great man once said, uh, the, 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 one of the great things about the dictionary is that it has all the other books in it. And that is true. Uh, that is also true here. I thought that was going to be funnier than it actually turned out to be. But you mentioned notes and queries, and you mentioned notes and queries in the same sentence with the word popular. And popular works like notes and queries, but maybe you can mention, maybe you can describe what notes and queries is or was. I expect that someone from the editorial board of notes and queries will give me a medal. Uh, because for 40 years or so, I have been singing the virtues of notes and queries, have been quoting citing, describing, and admiring notes and queries. Notes and queries appeared in the middle of the 19th century and became wildly, incomprehensibly popular. That is, we cannot even imagine how popular it was. It's a beautiful periodical, it was bi-weekly, which was something like our internet today. You want it, you have a coin, for example, and it's a strange coin, you don't know where it is from, and you are not quite sure what the inscription means, so you describe it and send a letter to Notes and Queries. Two weeks later, three people from Great Britain will tell you that they know exactly what this coin is, because they have another coin of the same type, and you will be perfectly satisfied. Or you have a quotation, and there was no Google. Uh, you forget where this quotation is from. Does anyone know? Yes, yes, five people know it, and 10 people use it every day. And so it goes. Absolutely everything, a miscellany, of multifarious things, 
useful or useless, stupid or enlightened, more enlightened than stupid. And among many other things, people asked one another about the origin of words and idioms. And of course, to know the origin of a word, you have to be a specialist. That is why you find a lot of silliness there. But the best scholars in the world replied to the questions. There was, for example, the great Walter Skeet, uh, the constantly irascible Walter Skeet, who never stopped telling his countrymen that they were ignorant and didn't want to stop being ignorant. And he was there to cure them of that ignorance. And there was the great uh, James Murray, that is probably in the pronunciation of most Americans, Murray, but I still cannot make myself pronounce Murray as Murray, uh, James, James H. Murray, who was the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, who also wrote letters, very often irascible letters. If you want to say something, say it plainly and don't beat about the bush or something like that. Or if you want to send me a letter, send it to me. And the address was very easy. Uh, Murray, Oxford. And that would be enough for the letter to, to reach him. They both had excellent beards, by the way. Murray and uh, the first one you mentioned. Not Murray, but... Uh... Uh, Skeet. Yes, he had a more presentable beard. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and Murray had a, a beard as long, as long as his dictionary. But it seems a lot of those explanations of, of words, those etymologies, didn't a lot of them show up almost word for word in the Oxford English Dictionary later on? Yes, that's exactly how, how it was. In a way, it's sort of reading the pre-Oxford English Dictionary, if you read Notes and Queries, plus all those articles about the coins and uh, symbols on... Kings and emperors. and Exactly. Remember also that the popularity that you refer to of Notes and Queries is in part driven by the situation in England at the time when it began. There were many reverend gentlemen who had livings which required them to do very little. And so they had lots of time on their hands. And so if, if they weren't digging in the earth and doing amateur archaeology, uh, they were collecting words. So Notes and Queries was a godsend to them. And those that weren't reverend were often gentlemen farmers, and they similarly had lots of time on their hand. And, and so those are the kind of educated gentlemen uh, who were looking around for something to do. And as you say, there was no internet, there was no radio or television. And so this kind of activity was the kind of thing that would result in uh, local dictionaries and dictionaries of slang, and ultimately, of course, in the OED itself. And some of these discussions went on for weeks or even a couple of months. Oh, yes. And I remember looking at the, uh, the etymology of gazebo, which was a particular favorite of mine, because no one came to any conclusions, but everyone had some opinion that they wanted to, to share with the rest of the world, or at least the rest of England. There was a discussion of the word henchman, which lasted 10 years with Frank Chance, whose name is unfortunately almost forgotten. Though again, I sing uh, his praise whenever I can, because he was a great etymologist and a very uh, well-educated man. I don't know about his beard. No. There is no, no, no portrait, absolutely nothing. And I know very little about him, except for the fact that he was a medical doctor. Apparently, he didn't have too many patients, uh, because that is approximately what Larry meant, too much time on one's hands. But as a result, I have a wonderful database of what people said about idioms closer to today's topic, when it's not so difficult to explain an idiom, or not as difficult as it is to explain the origin of a word. Because in order to explain the origin of a word, you have to be a specialist. And idioms are late. 
which is an interesting thing too. Very few idioms are really old. And if they're old, they're quotes from the Bible or translations from Horace or something like that. But truly English idioms are about four or five centuries old, not much older than Shakespeare in most cases, and usually much younger. So that many people really knew the explanation of our most recondite proverbs, sayings, and so on, and could explain things about raining cats and dogs and uh, paying through the nose and all those strange things which no one seems to know anything about, but suddenly someone knew. After all, uh, this book that we are discussing now owes its existence to those people, not only notes and queries, that's the main source, but not the only one. It owes its existence to those who offered, volunteered their opinions. Do you think that this was profitable enough to read, to go through uh, several hundred volumes in order to sift their opinions and come up sometimes with the answer, origin still unknown? Yes. And in fact, uh, in this, uh, take my word for it, many of the explanations and the long paragraphs that uh, you have written uh, don't reach a definitive conclusion about the origin of the phrase, uh, in part because you're well aware, even if you replicate them, of uh, folk etymological explanations that are so prevalent in some of the historical contributions made in notes and queries and elsewhere. There is no doubt that that's the way it is. It's almost the same that we can say, we could say, or might say about the origin of words. Hundreds of pages written about the origin of some of the most common words, man, wife, God, ship, anything. And at the end, we have those phrases, origin uncertain, which is a polite way of saying that nobody knows anything for sure. So it's the same thing here. But I think one of the advantages of my method is that when you know how many people wanted to explain something and failed, you will be careful in the future and you will not repeat the nonsense. Read the entry about cats and dogs, raining cats and dogs. The explanations are incredibly stupid. That is, one wonders why those gentlemen who had so much time on, the, on their hands, why they said those things. Oh, it's because cats, uh, when they walk, uh, the sound they produce does resemble the, the sound of a pouring shower. That's why cats. Now, wait a moment. What about dogs? Oh, never mind the dogs. If you have explained the cats, that's enough, isn't it? Well, of course, it's become a little uh, more, if I can say, dangerous now because we have the internet and to publish something, you don't even have to have a stamp, which you needed in the days of notes and queries. You just need a computer, which almost everyone has. And if you can set up a website, you can publish your own etymology of any idiom you want. And if you make it look nice, well, then it, it carries a lot of weight. So it's much easier, I think, now to popularize a wrong or ridiculous etymology, uh, much more so than it was in the days of the gentleman farmers. Uh, can I come back to some uh, concrete examples that I came across that, uh, that I knew to some degree or had used in some other way, but uh, was enlightened by what I found in the dictionary? For example, God's Acre. Now, I've written about uh, the novels of Theodore Francis Poes, and he uses this phrase a lot. 
And of course, he means the churchyard. Uh, but I didn't know anything about uh, what you mentioned, a, a German origin for that term. Uh, but it's certainly also used in God's Little Acre. But obviously, it's referring to the same thing. And the other one that occurred to me was uh, the phrase to go the whole hog, uh, which again was common enough parlance in England when I was growing up. But I, I've come across it in literary terms because Virginia Woolf uses it to describe uh, her talks with Catherine Mansfield. And she describes her with some awe as having gone the whole hog uh, on a number of occasions after Catherine had confessed to Virginia about all her uh, little affairs. So it's interesting to see something that has literary characteristics, as it were, uh, but haven't been explained in, in the way that, that you explain it. Uh, and so I thought that this would be useful for a literary scholar who was interested in following up on something like that. Uh, since you mentioned this idiom, History is also very, the history of, of research is interesting because the article uh, appeared in a festschrift and the author of that article used only notes and queries, the numerous explanations in notes and queries and nothing else. Uh, this is a classic predecessor, really, of this book. And he said something about notes and queries uh, being immensely useful. And it is immensely useful, uh, God's Acre, and how it started the Massachusetts, and how Longfellow used it, and what he thought about it, right. and all those things. But I also find it interesting, if you remember Fox's Wedding, which means rain and sunshine at the same time, something that I, of course, have never heard. And I don't think that anyone around us heard it. And it traveled all the way from India and crossed many borders and then became totally incomprehensible. And there is a thick book about the origin of this idiom. So when you read uh, something like uh, my paragraph about it, uh, you only see a reference to the book and you have no idea how much time it may have taken uh, to explain the origin. And when I read the uh, God's Acre story, I was thrilled. Oh, so there was someone before me who knew that Notes and Queries is an inestimable source. And there is a bibliography of everything on the proverbs and sayings in Notes and Queries, but just an enumeration of titles without any explanation. So you go from there. But we, of course, an army of volunteers uh, opened every page and I Xeroxed every page and the whole thing now is in my office. So that, yes, notes and queries is not the only source, uh, but one of the most important ones. What do you think about the indexes in the book? Will they make the book more usable, more useful, and more, if I can use the ignoble term, marketable? Because we all want the book not only to be opened, uh, but also to be bought. There are so many indexes there. Uh, do you think those indexes were a good idea? I have gone too far indexing absolutely everything, words, origins, authors, and so on. Well, let's see. I'm looking through the, uh, I first went to the subject index because I thought, well, the index has got to be the last few pages. But then as I flipped back, I saw, oh, here's for me a much more useful index of words rather than topics. But if I were looking up an individual idiom, I would find this extremely useful. But if I were doing a paper on idioms and I wanted animal idioms, well, I would go to the back. So I think it's useful for both casual curiosity and for greater research needs. 
Yes, I found the word index very useful. For example, I wanted to see whether you had, uh, before you could say Jack Robinson, and uh, I looked up under J, and of course it wasn't under J, but uh, it's under before, but it's there. And so that was useful. And another example would be, I can say things like as nice as ninepence, but probably not something either of you would say. Uh, but I wanted to see how often ninepence came in because it does occur in a number of, of your entries. And so the word index pulls them together in a useful way that I found very helpful. I like the theme index. Is it called theme index, topic index at the back? Yes, yes. Uh, some sort of thesaurus, yes. Yeah. I think one of the disadvantages is also the advantage because you, you start to look at, oh, well, you want to find all of these that have to do with, uh, I don't know, tables, and you start to go down rabbit holes as you would on the uh, on the internet. I think we've all experienced that. But I think that's a nice thing that can happen here with the uh, with the indexes or indices, if you want. Well, I think indexes is perfectly all right. Uh, unless we suddenly switch to Latin, uh, I think indexes will satisfy absolutely everybody. I want also to say one thing may probably come as a revelation to those who will not only open the book and immediately close it, but who will read it. And that is how late most idioms really are. Words are perennial. Uh, if you ask how old the word man, wife, boy, girl is, then you find out that man is very old, boy is not very old and girl is not very old, and wife is very old, and wife is, of course, is the root of the word woman, which was Weifman. But when you look at the chronology of the idioms in the book, you see that they're late, post-Renaissance, and that is not by chance. I think that might also be an asset, because it, to a certain extent, tells people about the origin of language, of mentality of the Middle Ages, it's also a look at the history of language and not only at the history of idioms. Did it come as a surprise to you that the idioms are late? Or did you take it for granted? Yes, well, of course, they should be late. Relatively late. But still, what's surprising in some ways is how persistent some are. You know, again, using similes, happy as or as clean as, as clean as a whistle. Well, that seems to be both British and American, and it seems to have been around for an awful long time. But at the same time, there's a creative element in the formulation of these. And I found in this corpus of contemporary American English, under happy, for example, as happy as the day is long, as happy as heaven pleases, as happy as a pig in mud, or something else, uh, as happy as Larry, of course, which interested me. Of course. <laughs> As happy as a lark or as happy as a kid in a candy store. Now, I'm pretty sure a kid in the candy store is not British, but it shows you how alive these idioms are. Even when they're being preserved, they're being, let's say, added to, even so. So when you read, a, when you read something like Beowulf, which is about the year 1000, the language is pretty straightforward. What about Chaucer a few hundred years later? How did he feel about... Uh... Uh, well, that's the beginning uh, of our epoch to a certain extent. And that's what I mentioned briefly in the introduction. I could have written and probably should have written more about it, but I didn't want the introduction to engulf the whole book. If uh, I can almost quote what I wrote in the introduction, uh, if you have a very good old English grammar and a good old English dictionary and a good edition of Beowulf, like Kleber's Beowulf in its modern version, you can read Beowulf and understand everything. 
without an instructor, if you have enough time and enough patience. With Chaucer, it's already somewhat different because many phrases are truly idiomatic. But today, you are absolutely lost because you suddenly find out one of the characters in the book kicked the, back, the bucket. And you begin to think about the bucket, and there is no bucket in view. You have to look it up in some dictionary, and you don't know where to look it up under kick or under bucket, and what it has to do with the bucket. And that's why I have a word index. We are dealing with something that can be called the post-medieval mentality. When they invented the art of perspective, that is when they pride themselves away from the canvas, uh, like children's drawings, they're flat and their language was flat. They had epithets and they had similes, but they never had metaphors. And they could say that my beloved is like a rose, but they would never have said my beloved is a rose because my beloved is not a flower. So my beloved was not a rose. Like a rose is fine. And when they learned the figurative use of words and things, then they began to produce idioms by the million, really. So that example you used of uh, kick the bucket, in America, I discovered you could also cash in your chips, which I would never use, but I might kick the bucket. You can also buy the farm, which is, I think, much more much easier to understand. And does it mean that people didn't know kick the bucket or that they weren't satisfied with it as a, as a solution, as it were, to uh, the locutionary problem? It's hard to tell uh, because it's this, the same question about synonyms. Uh, you have already uh, five or six words meaning grave and you open a dictionary of synonyms in addition to brave and doughty and valiant and so on you find to your horror that there are 25 or 30 words meaning brave. Language is so redundant, uh, and that's why it's so hard to learn it. Uh, there are so many of them. But of course, more or less, I think that is what you mean. Once they began to produce these things, then they could never stop. And there was much fun there, especially if you look at the section beginning with the word as, uh, nice. those, yeah. those similes. Uh, pages and pages of as, and one wonders who did it, and as wise as the woman of Mungret, and a long explanation, fine, as mean as tongs. Why should tongs be mean, and what does that mean? The explanation, perhaps the association is with pincers, an instrument that pinches, and we go back to the old attraction of clipping money, perhaps but that's really all that one, one can say. As merry as a Grig, which I use from time to time, only that no one knows what a Grig is. I came across that interestingly a couple of years ago and reading a biography of Charlotte Bronte, and she uses that as merry as a Grig, and, and there was a note in the edition that, which also said they didn't, weren't really sure what the Grig was, uh, but it might, might be a frog. Yes, Grig, as I have found, that is what Skeet explained, and of course, if Skeet explains something, who am I uh, to doubt the value of this explanation? Greek means cricket, and he cited many dialectal synonyms. Greek means an eel, and cricket, and way, and so on, a whole, uh, a whole line. I had the same trouble with as merry as a pismai. Nobody understands the word pismai. Pismai, my student said, what is pismai? That one I haven't heard in a while. 
Where on earth, Harry, did you run into the word Pismai? There was a nonsense song that was floating around in the 1940s. I remember my father quoting this, singing this in the house, and it had a, it just it was a nonsense song with the word Pismire, which I assumed was a nonsense word, and then I found out it had an actual meaning and uh, didn't make the song any more popular instantly, but uh, it was just floating around my house. have only one virtue that uh, they alliterate because they're stupid, silly. It's fine sometimes, and there may be, of course, some depth as nice as a nun's N-U-N, as nun's hen. Skeet explained it, but then Skeet explained everything. It doesn't mean that his explanation was absolutely correct, but probably the greatest attraction was that nice as a nun's hen has alliterating ends, but then the next is as pert as a pear monger. Well, that is really <laughs> too, too much uh, to, to swallow it. If you need the word pert, that is, uh, which, which you don't generally need. No, of course. Of course. And why Pearmonger uh, is so pert is not very clear. Of course, you have ones like fit as a fiddle, which is... Exactly. Yes. And again, alliteration seems to be more important there than, uh, than meaning. I have no doubt that you are right. Uh, though uh, one, of course, as always, when one uh, deals with such things, one should be very careful. As fit as a fiddle... Uh, that's something that you mentioned in, in our conversation a few days ago, as fit as a fiddle. Ah, fiddles fit. In the book, you will find an explanation. Yes, what the word fit meant at that time and when fiddles were fit, that's uh, probably true. As plain as a pike staff. Apparently, there are some things which are more plain than pike staffs. And that brings me to another question. How, how well are not only these, but in general, how well are sayings, idioms, known? I think it uh, differs tremendously from country to country, from area to area, uh, because sometimes I say something simply to amuse my students. Uh, a long lecture, they're tired, sometimes bored. They're students. They have no way of avoiding me. So they have to listen to me for an hour or an hour and a half. And sometimes I teach evening lectures. They're there like prisoners and cannot escape. So from time to time, I would say something simply to enliven them. Something like, well, there's thank you very much. That warms the cockles of my heart. And they will wake up uh, simply because it's, it's so funny. Just as there are words which make them smile. Uh, using the word fool uh, is nothing. But if I call a fool an income poop, uh, everybody begins to, to smile because it's a funny word. Or uh, someone who seems to be looking out of the window, uh, or out the window as most people around me say now, and uh, not listening to me. Uh, and I would say, I think uh, you've gone wool gathering. And again, everybody uh, begins to laugh. Do you know what to go wool gathering is? Somebody would timidly raise his or her hand saying, yes, I know. And the others will wake up and listen to it. One of the examples which amazed me very much and amused me very much was connected with what Pecker uh, everybody knew the obscene meaning of the word pecker, but not the saying, uh, which is the only one. I, uh, that is, I never heard the word uh, the word uh, pecker, uh, but there is one uh, which is supposed to be unpronounceable in England and turned out to be pretty clear everywhere, keep a pecker up. And they told me that in, in this country, pecker means nose. So there is really nothing to be ashamed of. In this country, meaning England. Uh, I don't know. Because there's the song, uh, it's very, very British. 
drop down dead. What is the, um, they're out of sorts in Sunderland and terribly coarse in Kent. They're dull in Hull and the Isle of Mull is seething with discontent. And then has the phrase, we'll keep our peckers down. Or we'll, uh... Those in England t- told me that this was totally unpronounceable. And mm. here it seems to be rather innocuous, only that nobody ever uses it. Mm. Uh, what is your general impression? How idiomatic are those whom you know? Well, I don't mean only those exotic phrases which nobody's supposed to know and nobody knew even a hundred years ago, but in general, are people usually plain spoken or do they want to enjoy what they say and add idioms for dessert? Well, of course, it depends upon how much they know about the uh, the phrase, I mean, that keep your pecker up. People may avoid it because they do feel that it may be in some way obscene even though that's not their usage but i don't i couldn't say whether it's british or american that's one of those examples where i i could say it uh, quite happily and i wouldn't consider it inappropriate but it would mean uh, you know uh, continue to be optimistic yes that's right <laughs> right but i don't think people are very uh, idiom friendly at least in our little corner of, of the world in minnesota which is where i'm based I have the same opinion uh, I don't hear people using, or if they do use idioms, it's usually a kind of a big production. They make a little pause and they say, well, you know, it's... Yes, yeah, showing off. Well, not showing off, but saying I'm about to uh, pay attention because this, this is about to get more interesting. So I don't know him from Adam's off ox, which I only heard once in my life, but I've been, I've been waiting for an opportunity to use it. Yes. Well, I think in Texas, where I'm located now, uh, there seems to be much more willingness to launch into sort of, let's say, dodgy uh, terminology. I've come across one as, as as happy as a leather queen at a prison rodeo, uh, which I think is uh, an interesting locution. Texas has one of my favorites. I don't know if it's in the book. Uh, that dog don't hunt, which sounds strange coming out of a Midwestern mouth. But I mean that doesn't make any sense. I can't even I can't even use it just because it doesn't it doesn't sound right. There's a variant on it that said that hound don't hunt. That hound don't hunt, and that works better as a from a literative point of view. Ah, very yeah, good. it means something like you can't make that argument or you can't you can't go there. Yeah, they say he did that. No, that dog don't hunt, or that hound don't hunt. I tried my best. Well, I can tell you an example of more or less the same type. Uh, one of my favorite uh, phrases is to be in a brown study, which means in a state of deep meditation, reverie, and having a serious problem, and I have to decide what to do with it. I learned the, the phrase from Agatha Christie, uh, because Hercule Poirot uh, is very often in a, in a brown study, and I'm very fond of Agatha Christie's books and of her style. I think she writes beautiful English. So from time to time, I use it. I know for, for sure that nobody understands it. Uh, so that's fine, uh, I thought. And there was a long discussion of this phrase in a periodical, not in notes and queries, uh, but uh, in the periodical The Nation, in the American uh, periodical, when the B volume of the Oxford English Dictionary appeared, and there was an explanation there. And in order to find the material for this book, we, I mean, an army of volunteers, not only I, uh, we opened every periodical in the world, really like Scientific American, The Nation, New Yorker, New Yorker, everything. And uh, not only Notes and Queries. Notes and Queries uh, looms large, but that's not the only one. And uh, a very interesting explanation about Brown study. And I, I was quite sure that this is specifically a British phrase. 
Two years ago, I won't tell you why, uh, but I reread Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the book which I read first when I was 12 years old. So I reread it and enjoyed it very much. And then I jumped up. Huck says, I felt rather brown studdish. Dear me, Huckleberry Finn knew this expression. He knew this idiom. Was it something that they knew only in the South, in one of those Southern states? How on earth did Huck know something that no one seems to understand today? Uh, I think someone who will open, uh, open this dictionary, not necessarily read it from cover to cover, because that's really too much to explain, uh, would find many amusing examples of what they thought was true and what was not necessarily true. There is a long entry on being in a brown study. Ari, do you ever use it? Um, I have heard it a few times, uh, each time from you. <laughs> I know it. I heard it when I was growing up, but I would never use it myself. But you knew it when you were growing up? I knew it when I was growing up, yeah. So yeah. it was common enough uh, for, you, for you to become. I've never heard anyone to use it. If we can imagine that someone can read this book from cover to cover, uh, will this person close the book with the feeling of having learned something really worthwhile so that the money spent on it hadn't been wasted? What is your opinion? That's a very blunt question. Is the book worth buying? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's, a, again, it's going to be one of those kinds of books that people will keep handy because they'll want to dip into it from time to time, either when they're talking with friends or because uh, they've got something there that they want to uh, test. For example, with those as happy as in other phrases of that sort, I tested them on friends in the area of where I live in, in this retirement community just to see what people use because I can use my wife as one kind of uh, measure of American English, but uh, uh, she's been exposed to British English too. But there's lots of people here from different parts of the country who never have. So I find it quite useful. And of course, it's the kind of thing that might well constitute a kind of parlor game or the kind of thing that you do over dinner because often I get together with other people over dinner and there may be half a dozen of us. And I, I would say, if you're going to say as happy as, what would you say? Or as clean as? And it's interesting to see what responses you get. So I think having the book uh, at hand would be valuable for that kind of uh, enterprise. Certainly in, in Christmas, it would be a, a great present for somebody. Do you think, Ari, that this book could be used in any courses dealing with the English language? Oh, sure. People talking about exactly what you were saying, the changes in how people express themselves, certainly, where you made that comparison of uh, the directness of Beowulf versus what happens later on, you know, with uh, in, in Chaucer, where it starts to shift, and Shakespeare, where it's going. Am I using it right? Whole hog? Uh, but what I was thinking of also is that some people might decide uh, just to have some fun and uh, use some of these in conversation, which might lead other people to think, well, where, where, where did you uh, where did you come up with such an obscure phrase? Well, it was in well, it was in this book that I got here. That was one. I take my word for it. I think people might have some fun just trying to revive some of these uh, uh, idioms. But by the way, I think the title is a great one. Take my word for it really sort of captures the, the contents there very nicely. Uh, it's rather easy to write a book. It's very hard to think of a good title. Uh, and uh, uh, that has been my experience for years. 
uh, I tried dozens and dozens of titles and offered them to the press. And they finally said, take my word for it, it's perhaps the best. And that's why uh, it now graces the cover of the book. The previous title, the pre previous suggestion, Oklahoma, I'm glad they didn't go with that one. <laughs> that, that's not, it was not as good, not as descriptive. Not as descriptive. And um, I can only finish our discussion because I think that we can talk about it forever, but uh, one hour is quite enough. Uh, let me tell you two things of which I am immensely proud. Once upon a time, the University of Minnesota Press used to exhibit books, I think, uh, in the faculty club. And uh, one of my books was there, and it was stolen. And those who organized the exhibit said, it's the only time in the history of our exhibition that a book has been stolen. And I was tremendously proud that the book which was stolen was the last book uh, which I would imagine uh, being stolen. That was Germanic Accentology. The very title makes people uh, sleepy. And then uh, on another case, uh, someone worked for the University of Minnesota Press and then left the press. I think this young woman was a student. And uh, the press said, we want to give you some parting present. What would you want? And she chose one of my books, uh, Translation of Lermontov. That makes more sense. In my long life, one could have boasted of more things, uh, but that's all I have. So I have to share the uh, little treasure that, that I have. But don't steal the book. Pay for the book. Buy the book. Yes. Take my word for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hello. Quick interjection from producer Maggie here. Uh, number one, this is directed to our listeners. Very importantly, please support your local bookstore. Number two, personally, for me, having so much word and etymological expertise in one space, virtual though it may be, is a rare opportunity to ask a question of our conversants that's been persisting with me. How do each of you sign off on your letters or emails? I always use cordially, even on my emails. I tend to be old-fashioned that way. I say sincerely or danke. When I'm writing to students, I write danke because they, they're supposed to know danke after three semesters. Yes, well, I have, <laughs> I have a small range of signatures. I learned it from some Englishman many years ago who signed his letters with ever. Sometimes when I feel maudlin and sentimental, I write ever. When in other cases, I sometimes write, well, of course, best regards and so on. But there's one thing uh, that I really hate. Uh, the word all the best uh, has, at least in England, has lost the article. And now everybody writes all best. Uh, and I think it's absolutely wrong because with the superlative degree, you need the definite article. So I refuse to write all best and write all the best just to prove that I'm still alive and kicking, of course. But you have to be very, very careful with the, when you use uh, smell you later because uh, not everyone's going to like it. That's absolutely right. Has to be a, a very good friend. Thank you very much. Uh, it has been a pleasure to see you both, especially uh, because uh, Larry lives now the whole uh, country across from me. And we exchange a few uh, Christmas cards, but now uh, it's the pleasure of talking to you several days ago when we were uh, discussing how to organize uh, this session. And now seeing you, seeing you, and seeing you, you Ari, uh, with, in, with our COVID things, uh, and we always meet with masks and don't recognize each other. Uh, and now 
we're here showing our true face. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. We're, we're, our names appear in the same book, but we've never met until this uh, right. until this moment. It's yeah. rather bizarre. No other place like etymology which unites people. We'll see okay. you later then. Mel you later.